Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the Speaking of Resilience podcast. I'm your host, Dan Worth, from the Groundwork Center for Resilient Communities. And we are thrilled today to have as our guest, Dr. Laura Sherman. Michigan is obviously, we have a Democratic governor, we have a Republican legislature, energy issues aren't really, aren't really partisan, and, but all of these issues need to be solved in a bipartisan manner. I have seen opinions change, I've seen policy makers change their minds and feel more pressure to do something if they've heard from a lot of folks. You don't need to say much. You don't need to be an academic, you know, PhD expert on whatever this issue is. They don't know it that well either. You just need to tell them yes, no on something. And I think that really matters. Dr. Sherman is the president of Michigan Energy Innovation Business Council, an institute for energy innovation. She most recently served as the organization's vice president for policy development and as a senior consultant at Five Lakes Energy, and previously as policy advisor to Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado on energy, agriculture, and environmental issues. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, we've really enjoyed the work of MEIBC over the last four or five years, um, and you guys have really evolved and done wonderful things. I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and MEIBC, sort of the evolution of both to this moment. Sure, yeah. So, well, I'll, I'll start simply with myself. Um, I actually have a PhD in uh, isotope geochemistry, as obscure as that is, <laughs> uh, from the University of Michigan, Earth and Environmental Science Department. Um, so I was in academics. Um, I, I studied mercury pollution and tracing where the pollutants go in the environment and kind of new methods to fingerprint um, mercury pollution. And so uh, policy was really important. You know, there's obviously there's regulations on mercury, state and federal regulations. Um, there's a lot of interest in harmful pollutants in public health. Uh, and I worked with a lot of public health professors, but really, um, I was writing papers where the tagline was, this is really important to policymakers. Um, and I felt like, I think now I know, uh, no one was reading them. Um, no policymakers were digging into the academic literature and, and reading that. And so I, I had one sort of, um, I don't know, enlightening moment where I, I had a meeting. I think we had a speaker from the EPA who was working, a woman really, in deep on the mercury regulations. This is when they were first crafting them. Yeah. Um, and I told her about my research and she said, she sort of looked at me like, oh man. And she was like, well, that would have been good to know six months ago. <laughs> like we could have really used that information to strengthen our rules. And I, you know, so it was sort of this moment where I was like, ah, I really care about these issues. I'm not making an impact. I'm not having the impact I want uh, in the in the ivory tower of, of academia, which is very valuable. But I think um, I wasn't, some folks have, you know, I work with a lot of folks in academics now who really are able to make that crossover and I yeah. just hadn't yet. Um, and so I did a, I decided to learn more about policy and um, one of the best ways I think that a program that's set up to allow academics to do that is called the AAAS Fellowship. It's the uh, American Academy for the Advancement of Science. Yeah. And um, they have two sets of fellowships, one in executive branch um, agencies in D.C. and one in Congress. So I got a fellowship um, through the American Geophysical Union to go to D.C., uh, spend a year um, 
helping, I'm using air quotes if you're on the podcast, uh, <laughs> largely learning, really learning um, about policy and, and trying to, as much as you can um, in that position, help. And, you know, a couple of things I learned really quickly that my research, I counted on the, I think I counted four times that I actually used my scientific training in a, you know, directly in, a, in that role. Uh, but it wasn't, that wasn't the most important thing that I already knew how to do. I knew how to read things fast and you had to collate things and you had to make things understandable to people and you had to take complicated concepts and, and shrink them down. Um, and so all of that was really uh, instructive. And I was lucky enough, um, the person I was working with ended up leaving the office. I worked for Senator Bennett from Colorado um, after about six months. And so I, use the uh, tried and true stay on and they can't get rid of you method, uh, which I highly recommend. Nice um, and uh, hung around long enough that they hired me. And so I got to stay for a couple more years, uh, ended up covering all of his energy, Senator Bennett's energy environment and agriculture policy um, wow. from DC I work with a team in Colorado and in DC um, covering those issues for the Senator. So that's kind of how I got into policy and, and Colorado's uh, known wanted for to come back. Yeah, and isn't Colorado yeah, really known for energy policy and, and progressive stuff? Is it? Did you learn a ton? Is there a toolkit you took out of that? That's I learned a ton. Yes, yes. And that's, you know, I knew I wanted to come back to the Midwest, um, I, I specifically to, to Michigan. And I, um, I wanted to work in a state that had a lot of energy issues, was really, I mean, they have, they have, natural gas fracking, they're producing oil, they're producing coal, they've got a ton of wind, they've got solar, they've got everything right there. They're, they're actually producing it. We're not just talking about it. We're actually mm -hmm. uh, producing it and, you know, shifting now, but really uh, probably starting to shift then, but it was a really purple state. I, I think it's, it's moving a little, probably more towards blue, but it's a really purple state. And so I wanted to work in a state where I had to do bipartisan efforts. You know, I, yeah. I didn't want to work for a senator where they were going to take a stand on issues and not have to negotiate across the aisle. And so um, we were never allowed to introduce a bill that was not bipartisan. Fantastic. Senator Bennett just did not do that. Um, and so that's really served me well. I mean, Michigan is obviously we have a Democratic governor, we have a Republican legislature. Um, energy issues aren't really by, aren't really partisan and EIBC is not a partisan organization but uh all of these issues need to be solved in a bipartisan manner yeah no absolutely and EIBC does a great job of that can you tell us a little more sort of about the evolution of EIBC and how it started and how it came to be here I first met it through Liesl Clark when she was there doing wonderful work so would love to hear a little a quick history yeah so um and, and my, my knowledge of the early years are probably less clear, uh, but it was founded in 2011. Um, the original goal and mission, I think, remains the same today, which is to be the business voice of advanced energy in Michigan. So we really, we have, we've grown from, I think, 13 or so, 10 or so original com member companies. We now have about 120 member companies. Wow. Um, yeah. and you know, ups and downs through the years, but trajectory of, of consistent growth. Um, we have, and our goal is to really set the policies that'll help those members um, create more jobs and do more business in Michigan. Um, and, and we're really 
uh, I, not, I don't want to say technology agnostic, but we represent all the different technologies in the advanced energy sphere. Our only um, rule is that we don't have, we do not have uh, utilities as members. So no regulated utilities um, that do work in Michigan are members of EIBC. Nice. And so um, I think that allows us to represent the sort of third party um, uh, energy developers who are, you know, not not fossil fuel interests in general, um, electric vehicles, energy efficiency, wind, solar, um, sort of a huge range of group of uh, companies. Yeah. And it's funny, we often hear of chambers of commerce and industry groups as sort of the laggards on climate and clean energy. Seems like the script is getting flipped in Michigan. And a lot of the companies I'm seeing as part of your ranks are, are the major employers are becoming that. So it must be kind of fun to be a sort of pseudo chamber doing this brilliant advanced energy work. It, it is. I, I like the way you characterize us. I do think of, um, I think that we are, uh, what's the saying, punching above our weight um, at this point. And I think that the organization has really grown um, through the great leadership of folks you, you mentioned, like Lisa Clark, to, uh, to what it is today. And um, I think with all of our members, we're, we're employing so many people and so many, uh, so many different interests across the state that I think it is, it's nice to think of it as a mini chamber of commerce. Um, and, and it's, we're definitely seeing uh, our influence more, I think, over the years in terms in front of lawmakers, in front of um, the regulators, working with the utilities on certain things, working yeah. um, to get them to do certain things better in other cases. Um, and I, I think that, you know, a lot of our members are also members of the Michigan Chamber. And, and so I, I don't want to discount that. I think the Chamber yeah. has a huge role to play. And I think um, our members becoming their members helps us think about places where our missions are aligned. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you mentioned jobs. We love that word. I know you guys put out an annual report. Can you give us a sense of the clean energy, advanced energy and mobility jobs in Michigan and the Midwest? Just what's that's looking like, this growth? Yeah, well, so actually, I don't want to take credit for um, reports of others. So it's actually, a, the, I think the report you're mentioning is from Clean Jobs Midwest, and they're a consortium of groups, and, and we we are um, a state partner with them. We help them um, on their Michigan work, and they do great work. Uh, in uh, We were at 125,000 clean energy jobs wow. um, in Michigan, you know, leading the Midwest. It, yeah, huge growth. Hundred twenty-five. Um, unfortunately, is wow. Yeah, yeah, and it's um it's split across a lot of different sectors. Um, advanced transportation, energy efficiency, renewables. You know, all of our members um, represented there. Uh, we've seen a lot of job losses. You know, over the last in March and April and May um, because of the pandemic. And I, I don't have the most recent numbers. I'm hoping we see a lot of job growth again and rehiring. Um, we're at least anecdotally hearing that from our members, um, but I don't have the numbers on that yet. But yep. um, I expect it to rebound as hopefully that we get through this. Yeah. And how are the members doing? Has your guys' role changed a bit now that it's sort of not playing defense, but, uh, but helping them get through this tough time, it must be a total pivot as it is for many people these days. And what does that look like and how's it feeling and working? 
Yeah, well, I'm I'm extremely lucky to. There's only our our staff is really small. There's three of us. Um, we have a 15 person board uh, that governs us. But I'm I'm really lucky to work with a very uh, creative and um, agile staff. So uh, Corey Connolly and Nicole yeah. Forward. We shifted everything online, so we shifted all. We have um, and we have events every. I mean, week or two weeks, usually in person. We shifted all those online. Um, we've been doing a ton of content for our members and for the you know public. We're still doing legislator education online. Nice. Um, we're testifying in front of the legislature online virtually. I think actually, in some ways, it's a lot nicer um, than <laughs> spending my two hours driving to Lansing to do those kind of things. Um, we've and, and you know we shifted. We started a, a new series for our members um, that we're calling Bring Your Own Lunch and Learn. Uh, but we shifted to the, the beginning of that. We really brought in folks who were experts on um, what the state was doing, what MEDC was doing, you know, because um, the message we heard from our members was that energy, a lot of our companies are small businesses. So anything that helps small businesses helps our companies. Um, so information about the paycheck protection program, information about loans, grants, you know, those kinds of things, um, are helpful to all of them, uh, as they are to other small businesses. Yep. No, fantastic. And, uh, looking at Michigan as a state now, you know, I think we were on this wonderful trajectory, saw Ann Arbor, Traverse city, Petoskey declaring hundred percent goals, a lot of businesses getting out in front of it and declaring goals up here. We got, Terry Republic and others really driving this forward. Um, but I'm wondering if you can sort of fill us in on where you see Michigan headed, you know, for this immediate term and then five to 10 years. And are things like carbon neutrality and 100% targets for the state, things that still feel achievable? And then I'd love to talk a little bit about the policy that's moving its way through the legislature now and how that can play a role in your guys' view. Yeah, well, I guess I think the cat's out of the bag um, on this. I mean, the renewables are the cheapest form of new generation. It's, you know, um, no offense to our friends with the utilities, but consumers in DTE are not going to plan over the long term to invest in a technology that's more expensive. That's not, that's not their mandate. That's not what they're working on. And um, both, companies have made long-term commitments to um, reducing carbon emissions and, you know, in their integrated resource plans, you know, I'll highlight consumers specifically 6,000 6, megawatts, six gigawatts of solar over by 2040. So um, I think it is actually, I mean, I, I think these goals are critical and they're pushing us in the right direction, but I actually think they're even more achievable um, because of the the cost declines and the technological improvements and the innovations that the industry's been making um, over the the last couple decades, I mean, I wish I had pulled the numbers exactly, but it's something like eighty percent decline in the cost of solar over the last decade and sixty five percent decline in the cost of wind. And I don't know what story I've forgotten what the storage numbers are, but they're they're in the middle of the drop. So they're coming down really fast right now. Um, so as as that continues to happen, I think the goal has become more and more achievable. And I think cities, companies, um, 
you know, organization, state making these kind of commitments really um, make sure that we hold to that focus. And I, I think actually, um, you know, there are concerns that with the pandemic, but I, you know, I think these investments are smart financial investments. So I actually don't think that we're getting knocked off track yeah. at all on these long-term goals. No, that's great to hear. And then you asked me another question in that question. Yes, I did. <laughs> I, don't I often do that. But uh, about policy at the state level, and uh, I want to preface it by saying I think a lot of our listeners are folks thinking of rooftop solar on their houses. You know, six gigawatts is amazing, but I think people are sort of looking for an entry point in some ways too. So if you could talk a little bit about sort of the tension there between the really big stuff and the really small stuff, and I know there are bills moving through the legislature now that address that, you know, increasing caps and things. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've, been, I've been spending inordinate amount of time, as has uh, Corey, um, and, and a lot of our, you know, I, I know the folks at Groundwork have too, a lot of our colleagues on these issues. Um, it's, it's really important right now. And, and, you know, EIBC has a huge membership. We have large companies who do utility scale solar. We have a lot of small installers. Um, we, I think that for, that we are equally supportive of all of them and in different applications, it makes sense. Um, I've seen, I, I think personally that the cost arguments between how much a utility scale solar installation costs and a residential are irrelevant. And this was actually pointed out very clearly by, I forgot, I don't want to misquote, by someone yesterday at the, the Senate Energy hearing, I think it was Ed Rivet, actually, from Michigan Conservative Energy Forum, that um, it doesn't really matter if on a uh, levelized cost basis, residential rooftop solar is more expensive than utility-scale solar, because the, the customer is paying that. Yeah. So if I am making that investment, it's not your problem. Like it's not the utility's problem that it's more expensive. It's my problem. It's and I will figure out if that's something I want to do, I'll figure out how to do it. Um, and people are making the decision, especially in Michigan with a really high um, residential rates for electricity, that it makes sense for them. Yeah. So they're doing that more and more. And costs have come down. And that's, I think, costs coming down um, on one side and the utility rates going up on the other, there's an inflection point where we're seeing lots and lots of people wanting solar on their rooftops all across the state. Uh, that's led to significant increases in installations across the state. And, you know, unfortunately, um, because of all the issues that were being worked out in the 2016 energy legislation, um, on, you know, EIDC actually opposed that legislation because it ended net metering. So on that ground alone, despite all the other good stuff in that, that bill, uh, those bills, uh, we actually opposed it because it switched from that metering to this distributed generation tariff, which uh, we don't think act, you know, equitably pays folks for the, the power they produce at their house. Yep. Um, but it did, and we're moving into that world now. And you know, I think customers and installers are figuring out how to make that work. They're doing energy storage. That's working out. The problem is we also didn't get rid of the limit on how many people can install rooftop solar. And so now we're in a protracted fight with the utilities to try and raise that, that cap um, on how many people or how, how many uh, kilowatts can be installed on rooftops. And, um, 
the, the Public Service Commission has said there's no reason for a cap. The governor's office has said there's no reason for a cap. We've said there's no reason for a cap. Lots of, you know, there are um, no other state has restricted, has as restrictive of a program as ours with a cap. Wow. So wow. this is unprecedented. It's a testament to the strength of the utilities in our state and, um, you know, all the other things that were going on in 2016. So uh, that's one of the, our most important legislative priorities right now. Um, there's a series of bills that would restore a fair value of solar and also lift the cap in the, um, both in the Senate and the House in Michigan. Unfortunately, there's been less consideration of the bills to change the, um, the pricing, but we have had a lot of consideration of the bill of the bill that lifts the cap. Um, and just yesterday, I I testified um, in a hearing, and I ended my testimony by saying it was a very disappointing day because we worked so hard, and we got to a point where the the bill is introduced, um, put requirements on the MPSC that weren't reasonable, and didn't raise the cap. It didn't address the underlying issue. It, it gave us at most six months of more certainty. Ah. And, you know, for customers, um, we don't know what that means. In, you know, our best example is what happened in up coast territory where that's in the upper peninsula. They, they hit the cap uh, a couple years ago and they stopped allowing people to install um, solar if they were connected to the grid, which most of us have to be. Um, and the other utilities claim they will interconnect you um, no matter what, even if we hit the cap, but we lose the timelines, we lose the, the fee structure, we lose the requirements, we lose the ability to hold their feet to the fire on that because there's yeah. no law or program after we hit the cap. Wow. So, you know, I think, I think this will continue. It's um, consumers is expecting to hit their cap by the end of this year and wow. UPCO is probably even sooner than that. So this isn't a, an issue long in the future. This is, this is now. Uh, if listeners are interested in um, solar, I would get in now if you're in consumer's uh, territory. You've got net metering for another couple of months. Um, and, you know, unless we get this fixed, there, you may have only a couple of months no matter the uh, payment scheme. So, and what can, uh, what can <laughs> yeah. and what can citizen advocates do? So you can get solar on your roof for sure. Are there ways to pressure legislators in your district, candidates who are running? What do you find most most effective for individuals to do who are listening? Yeah, absolutely. So you know what I learned in my time in DC is that every let you think it may not matter to call call your legislator or write an email and. You know, I'm not as familiar with what they do here in the state, but I'm sure it's very similar. They have someone who sits at the front desk who records all of those. And then in most offices, they have a weekly staff meeting and they'll ask that person, what were the calls this week about and what did they say? And they literally have a tally and they say, we heard 60 people call about this solar cap bill. We don't even know what it is, but 59 of them want us to pass it. And, you know, I mean, there's obviously a lot of things that go into a legislator's decision making, but um, I have seen, I have seen opinions change. I've seen policy makers change their minds and, and feel more pressure to do something if they've heard from a lot of folks. So I definitely think, and I think that, you know, Groundworks and MyCan and a lot of these networks have done a really good job of putting out alerts 
you know, when you should call or email um, your legislators. And there's one, there was one yesterday um, from Vote Solar that I think folks circulated. I think that um, Groundworks put out a letter. So staying connected with these kind of groups that can filter the you the, the key talking points because all you need you don't need to say much you don't need to know you don't need to be an academic you know phd expert on whatever this issue is um they don't know it that well either they're just a front desk person they're probably an intern you just need to tell them yes no on something um and i think that really matters no, that's super helpful makes it less intimidating i think to jump in so <laughs> great all right, I wanna change gears a little bit. And we've been talking a lot recently about just transition. Um, and I know solar has been a wonderful thing for many households, but oftentimes, and, and, and investors and companies, but oftentimes those are folks already have means. And so as this revolution, this huge transition is coming, uh, how do we make sure low-income folks and especially BIPOC low-income folks are included, um, are helped and uh, what role does or can Michigan EIBC and your guys' companies do in helping pushing that forward? Yeah, I think that's incredibly important. And, um, you know, this is, this may seem small, but what, what we committed to a few weeks ago is, is starting at least initially uh, more staff education and more assistance for our members in specifically sort of workforce development, hiring, um, getting new people into their companies, getting people into the room who may not otherwise have those opportunities. We're working on a survey right now for our members that'll go out soon to find out what they're already doing and what they could use our help, you know, doing better or doing more of um, in terms of hiring uh, people of color or um, from diverse communities or low income folks. Um, so that's kind of a an initial step. I think it's also, you know, really, I think it's really important to understand the, the health impacts of um, fossil fuel generation versus uh, renewable generation, you know, and that's sort of where my background lies is, you know, looking at uh, mercury pollution and particulate pollution. Um, I, we did a lot of work in Detroit, uh, the, the PhD group that I worked with, um, and there's huge just disproportionate impact in communities of color and low-income communities from air pollution, specifically uh, related to fossil fuel generation. So I think mm -hmm. um, transitioning away from, you know, shutting down Bell River, shutting down these large um, coal-fired power plants disproportionately helps those communities. Um, we're also, on our part, Michigan EIBC, we're committing to take a, a larger role in making sure that those voices actually get into the room. Because I think it's I think it's important in a lot of these decision-making processes, um, at least I've felt like there's just a characterization that this is what the community wants, um, that this is what would be good for the community. And I don't think we know that unless we get those people to actually speak for themselves. Um, and so, you know, just, one small example right now, we're, we're working with a, a group of stakeholders to advocate that DTE in there, um, they're trying to come up with a low income uh, renewable energy proposal. Sort of, I don't wanna say community solar because it's not really community solar, but that's, that's the characterization. Um, 
and, and we're really trying to push along with a lot of others that their first step is to really figure out what do the communities in their service territory want. Together with a, a large group of stakeholders, we're trying to push them that their first step is to get the communities in the room and really do or hire someone if they can't do it, um, really meaningful community engagement and figure out what's most important to those communities. Is it shutting down the, the coal plant nearby? Is it supporting more renewable development? Is it a bill credit? You know, what do they need and what do they value from a um, program that's specifically tailored to low-income people? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. And you mentioned community solar in there and how the proposal doesn't really feel like community solar. We've been battling a lot up here trying to figure out what that looks like and how it works. I know Jackson Copel and Solidarity and other folks down there are doing the same. Do you see disruption coming to the point where a community, even without huge policy change, communities can build their own, own it, distribute it, get the benefits? Or is that far off? Or does that need a lot of policy to make happen? I think we need, I think we need legislative change, um, but I don't think that's impossible. And I, I really hope, and that it will be, I mean, so we create our policy platform every two years. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to propose that that's one of the things at the very top of our policy platform. Um, and I, yeah, I think that it's, I think it's possible. I think the utilities view it akin to the choice fight, which they will fight tooth and nail. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, it's kind of in that same bucket. But I think there are a lot of there are a lot there's a there's a range of things that could be real community solar between what we have now, which really isn't and full choice. Yeah. Um, and I think getting third parties involved with communities that want solar and allowing them to develop a project and then bring it to the utility. Um, there are a lot of ways this could work that I think uh, would enable more community um, leadership and ownership of these kind of projects. You know, I've actually, when I was in my post or my uh, end of my graduate career, I tried to help the city of Ann Arbor, their um, energy committee, Nice. you know, uh, they're great folks and they were trying to figure out how to do community solar and we spent a, a six months, you know, trying to figure it out. And the end was just sort of, it doesn't pencil out. Um, it's really hard to do these complicated arrangements where somebody takes the tax equity and somebody else owns it and you, you know, sleeve it. And then because you're not the utility, you can't provide a credit on utility bills. And so um, it could be, I think there are a lot of potential to do it right. And I think um, there I'm hopeful that other folks, I, I've seen some real interest in that in the next year, and I think we can really try to work on that. No, it's fantastic. And I think we're finding up here that it's like, of course, statewide, you need a statewide group to optimize how the pieces fit together. But when you get local, like communities know how to optimize, right? They, they scrap, they're resilient, they are lean. And so if you leave it to them to craft a solution and then integrate those together, you get a pretty beautiful product versus a top-down solution that hopefully trickles. Right. And I think that, I mean, to reduce costs, you're right. Like communities are, are lean. And if you let companies compete, they get to the lowest, you know, they get yeah. to the lowest numbers. They want to win. And yes. um, 
if it's run by a monopoly utility, you don't always get that solution. Yep. So figuring out how to make it in the utility business model to allow this to work, I think is for me that in my mind, that's the, that's the key. That would be the key to the puzzle. Yeah. And have you seen states that did that well? Is Colorado an example, California, New York, any of the leaders, or has no one really cracked the nut? You know, there are a lot of other states that have community solar, but I, I, you know, I'm, I'm in my, the early stages of trying to figure that out because I think the key is understanding um, what the regular, what the regulatory framework is in that state. So if it's a deregulated state, things are very different than if it's a regulated state, if it's, uh, if the utilities have control over distribution, but not generation, it's different. So yeah, we're having a bunch of those conversations right now to, um, to figure out what is a model we could align ourselves with. I think, I mean, and, and there's also, you know, leadership from folks like Rocky Mountain Institute who are yeah. trying to look at things like performance-based regulation and how we change the utility business model to, um, to allow this. So I don't have a good model yet, if I'm sure someone listening does, and they have to, I'm happy to talk about it because we're we're gearing up to make this a big focus. Oh, I love that. That's so exciting to hear, Laura. Nice. All right, let me shift again this time to federal policy. Um, we're hearing about stimulus packages making their way through Congress. Um, renewable energy industry doesn't seem to be getting quite as much as attention as a lot of us think it should. And it's one that, as you were mentioning earlier, was pretty much punched in the face by the COVID crisis in terms of jobs and ability to do projects. So I don't think you guys lobby federally, but if you were to, or if you just sat down with someone crafting this, what would you, what would you ask for in terms of what Michigan needs from a federal perspective to, to help them get back on track and, and keep the momentum that was going? Yeah, so we, you're right, we don't, we don't lobby federally, so I'm less adept uh, on these issues at this point, but I think, you know, what we heard from our members, and what we have consistently heard, um, is this, the small business relief programs are still and remain really important. I think beyond that, you know, one of the biggest tools in the toolbox for the federal government is tax credits, and um, I think there's a, you know, there have been proposals to uh, change the the way that the tax credits are applied to to make them direct payments rather than if folks have lost all their um, tax equity they may not be able to take a tax credit but they could take a direct payment so I think that's a key issue that folks have been talking about um, extending the tax credits to allow us to get over this this hurdle especially since you know construction stopped and folks weren't able to do installations I think would be really important um and then you know for me personally i think supporting um state and local governments right now is really critical i think they've you know you guys know they've taken a huge hit um yeah. the state budget and all local budgets um and and that trickles into all the businesses that operate there it it changes you know talk can, um conversations about tax liabilities for projects that want to be in local areas and so yeah. I really think shoring up um, those local governments is important now as well. Nice. And on a related note, uh, we saw the Biden campaign recently came out with a $2 trillion climate plan. I'm not sure how much you've looked at it, but I'm curious on your thoughts of, of an investment of that size, what it could do for Michigan. And, and if something like that were to happen, regardless of whose office uh, 
what as Michigan we'd be, we'd be looking for and, and, and how a package like that could really jumpstart things. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't even think in trillions of dollars, but that would be, uh, you know, wonderful to, you know, to focus on um, climate and clean energy. And I uh, admit to having not read the plan in detail yet, but I think, you know, for us, it's all any investment like that is going to create jobs. And it's, it's, it's about allowing our economy to sort of giving us a jump start to keep going. Um, and I think, you know, especially in technology development, um, in terms of, you know, innovation, in terms of spurring new ideas forward. Uh, there's a lot of good ideas that, that could probably decrease costs, could increase efficiency, could, you know, help us get the next big thing um, that are not yet funded and that we need more ability to invest in. You know, Michigan's made huge investments in battery manufacturing under yeah. Governor Granholm's administration. And that really, I think, put us on a really good path to take advantage of the electric vehicle um, market coming down the pipe and now energy storage as well. But I'm not sure that we're, uh, that we've not necessarily connected those dots and, and gotten, taken full advantage of the opportunities under, uh, that that funding might have provided. So um, I think there's a, a lot that, that our economy could do with more sort of investments in that kind of R and D. Um, and, and I'm, my mind immediately just, you know, goes to the auto industry and the manufacturing um, and sort of innovation possibilities there, especially with all the investments in automated, connected, shared, electrified transportation that we're seeing. Um, but we, you know, we need more charging stations. We need, um, more affordable vehicles for folks. And, you know, I think there's investments that could be made at the fleet level, at the state level, um, and, with, you know, at the sort of innovation level that would really help spur that along. Nice. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the advanced mobility. You know, connecting the dots, I feel like, is a lot of what you guys are doing these days. Clean energy, efficiency, distribution, storage, mobility, kind of doing it all. Are you seeing those dots start to connect? And specifically in advanced mobility, where do you see us five to 10 years from now? And, and what has to happen policy-wise and from your guys' member groups to make that happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think so. I think um, the at the state level, they're really doing a good job of connect, starting to connect those dots. There's a new um, office of I'm going to screw up the title. I think it's the Office of Mobility, uh, Advanced Transportation, and Electrification. Not, not, I'm sure that's not right, and I apologize <laughs> to the new director, Trevor Paul, who's wonderful, uh, and to their staff. But um, essentially, the, the point is that it's advanced transportation and our mobility future, but it explicitly also calls out electrification. So it's clearly like trying to combine those together and, and bring them into one um, unified place to look at what the policy should be to make those changes moving forward. Um, the governor's also done a lot in the regulatory sphere with trying to advance that with the, the new My Power Grid initiative, which mm -hmm. is basically trying to bring all buckets of um, grid modernization into one place and to try and allow more uh, integration of renewables, meet her climate goals, um, you know, address carbon pollution, 
in the regulatory sphere and sort of trying to connect the dots there. So I think I think it is happening more and more. Um, we do a lot of we do a lot of work with Mish Auto, which is a, a sort of similar to us trade organization of the auto automakers and um, also interested in the future of mobility. Um, actually, Glenn Stevens, their executive director, is now on our the Institute for Energy Innovation board. Um, so he's directly helping us. Yeah, and um, that I mean that question of where we're going to be in five or ten years. Everything. I mean, maybe yeah, the pandemic set us back a little bit, maybe on electric vehicles, but I really don't think much. And I think. Um, the key is, are we going to build them in Michigan and are we going to deploy them in Michigan? And that's, I think, the inflection point that um, that we need to decide as a state that we want that to happen, uh, that we don't want to lose um, dominance to Silicon Valley uh, and other you know, places where they're making successfully um, electric vehicles and deploying them more than we are here. So, you know, we've put out a proposal um, we had a report that we published last December uh, with actually with support from the Porter Family Foundation um, to make a recommendations to the state, to the administration on what they can do to help advance the um, electric mobility future. And, and one of those, we already have $65 million from the Volkswagen settlement in Michigan. Yeah. Um, they have a plan right now where some of that money is going to diesel retrofits. Uh, some of it's going to, um, electric vehicle charging, you know, various different things. We told, we proposed to them, do what Colorado did. This is actually, you know, drawing nice. on a Colorado example to bring it full circle, and and let's commit 100% of those funds to electric, to electrifying transportation. So, um, you know, let's do electric school buses. Let's let's get the kids away from diesel emissions as they're waiting for the buses. Yeah. Let's do 100%, you know, electric trucking. Let's make maximize the amount we're spending on um, electric charging stations. So that's one part of it. And the other part of our plan is actually, our proposal was to um, switch the state fleet. So you can lead by example. You can help incentivize other folks by buying more and leasing more electric vehicles at the state level yourself. Um, and so... That you know, that's a little more complicated with a state budget that's in free fall. Um, yeah. But we actually now we're we're working on an article right now, and we're going to have a convening in August. There's actually you can um, make use of the electric vehicles you already have now in a more efficient manner, like a first out type of a policy, which North Carolina has and Colorado has as well. Um, where we could actually justify the purchase of more electric vehicles by first making use of the ones we have already in a better manner, which actually, if your goal is carbon reduction, uh, it doesn't matter if you own 10 EVs if they just sit in the lot, right? right? It matters if you use them. So we're sort of shifting our thinking on that into a, a world where we don't have a huge state budget um, to still look at carbon reductions and electric vehicle use and get the state to support um, support in that manner. Fantastic. No, that's great. And you guys are doing so much. I'm wondering how our listeners can plug in. You know, I know if they're companies, they should join. And you guys put on amazing events that we always end up at and love and get inspired by and put out reports. Uh, anything you want to say on sort of how folks can connect to Michigan EIBC? 
Yeah, if there's companies, we would love to connect with you. Please, you know, email one of us and reach out. We'd love to have you join. Uh, if you're an independent consultant, we still, you know, we have lots of people who sort of have a consulting firm on their side job and join us through that. Um, so there's sort of other avenues. And as you said, a lot of our events are open to the public. So we have a series of networking events. Um, throughout the year, we have an annual conference, which is actually now in August. Uh, virtual, um, obviously, and we've got a great lineup for that. Yeah, that should be really fun, uh, including a happy hour with lots of opportunity for networking. And um, we have a gala every year, which is sort of an awards dinner that involves lots of networking. We also have a newsletter that goes out every week. Um, anyone can be on that list. So if you just want more information about what's going on in the advanced energy industry in Michigan um, and, and across you know, I guess advanced energy industry in general, um, feel free to, you can subscribe right on our website. Um, it's it's a hard website, but it's M-I-E-I-B-C.org. So www.M-I-E-I-B-C.org. Um, and you can subscribe there. And then, you know, I guess we're always also willing to chat with folks who have, you know, interesting new ideas. We we love working with Groundworks and other organizations. You know, we have, if you have a, here's another idea. If you have an organization that's not a um, company, but, you know, a member organization based in Michigan, we have a state partner uh, program yep. now. And I think you guys are a state partner of ours now. I'm pretty sure, or we're going to be soon. <laughs> we're working on it if we haven't gotten it done. Yeah, no, um, we're in. And that involves, yeah, that's, um, that involves cross publication of events and invites to events, um, that kind of stuff. So lots of different ways we'd love to connect with folks. Fantastic. And I have, there's this great quote, and I don't know if it's Gus Spetz or if he shared it, but it was about looking into the abyss, but not getting stuck there. So I'd like to end if you're willing on, you know, there, this is a hard time and this is a hard, uh, industry to be part of, but it's also beautiful and full of opportunity. So what, what makes you the most optimistic these days about, about all of it? At EIBC, Corey and I have instituted a new policy where on Friday we try to have a sort of a heck yeah moment where we yeah. go through the week and we say, here's what we did that we think we're making a difference. And I think, um, you know, looking at the little things and um, looking at the direction, taking a step back, looking at the bigger picture, our, the costs are coming down. This is inevitable that we're moving towards renewables and advanced energy. And I think sometimes, that's right, we can get lost in the details of the all the battles that we're waging. But I really think um, the arc of history is in our favor, and the you know the reality of the costs and the technological innovations are in our favor. Um, and I'm really, you know, our members really inspire me too. You know the they, it's hard, as you said, we're going through a hard period, but um, they're so innovative. If there's a challenge and, you know, this isn't going to work, they're coming up with a different way to make something else work. Um, and so they're always innovating, always coming up with new ways and, and trying to um, advance, advance their industry and advance their companies. And I think that really gives me hope too. Nice. Well, that's good. Let's end the interview with a heck yeah moment. <laughs> Thanks for all you're doing. Thanks for your time today and for all the work Michigan EIBC is doing and has done. And uh, we look forward to carrying it forward with you in the future.
Thank you. Good to talk with you. It's yeah, fun. Thanks, Laura. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Speaking of Resilience podcast. You can find more episodes of the Speaking of Resilience podcast on our website, groundworkcenter.org podcast, and on all major podcast platforms. If you appreciate this content and want more of it, become a podcast supporter by donating at groundworkcenter.org podcast, and we'll give you a shout out in our next episode. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast wherever you listen in. And don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. This helps other listeners find the Speaking of Resilience podcast. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Groundwork Center and at Michigan Climate Action Network. Speaking of Resilience is created by the Groundwork Center for Resilient Communities and the Michigan Climate Action Network. This episode was produced by Miriam Owsley and Jeff Smith, hosted by Dan Wirth.